From Swartz Media, I'm Daniel James, and this is The Fight for a Voice, a special series from 7am. On October 14, we are being asked a simple question to which we must answer yes or no. And while the question itself is a simple one, the issues in and surrounding the debate, the proposed alteration to the nation's founding document, are anything but simple. To understand how we got here and why a voice to parliament is the model we're all being asked to vote on, you need to properly understand the last consultative body we had, known as ATSIC. Its failures drive the no campaign and its disbandment drives the yes campaign. The story of ATSIC is part of a broader narrative of promises kept and broken, the reconciliation that never happened and the people who kept going. This is episode one, The Road to the Referendum. It's Monday, October 9. Look, let's just start off, uh, just for the for the record, Dave, uh, please introduce yourself. I'm Mick Gooder. I'm a Gungaloo man from central Queensland. My, my area takes in just west of Rockhampton to the Comet River, takes in all the mines out that way, plus sacred places like the Blackdown Tablelands. The heated debate on the voice to Parliament has revealed much about Australia as a country. Its ability to reckon with its own history and preparedness to move forward one way or another. It's not the first time an advisory body to government has been proposed. One man who has seen it all come and go before is Mick Gooder. You start with, you know, a father who was uh, a unionist who always advocated for workers' rights, particularly Aboriginal workers' rights. He had a mum who raised 10 kids and was fierce about protecting her children and um, we used to have a joke when Cheryl Good have marched through the doors, gates of a schoolyard, every teacher scattered because <laughs> she's going to sort someone out inside. <laughs> so you, you, you grow up with those people who are fierce about protecting us and that just becomes part of your DNA really and, and you grow up. And Mick uh, was born into an Australia where he, his mother, father and their extensive families weren't counted as part of the population of the Commonwealth. In a country still basking in the glow of the Melbourne Olympics, a time to show its best self to the world. Melbourne is hardly more than a provincial town, capital of Australia's smallest state. Population, just over one million. Named after a British Prime Minister. The 1967 referendum, still 11 years off, from being the bipartisan reckoning that would see the Aboriginal people finally counted and taken into the consideration by lawmakers. The referendum is on Saturday, and it's important that we should have the maximum vote because the eyes of the world are on Australia. They are waiting to see whether or not the white Australian will take with him as one people the dark Australian. His story, and many like him, is the Australian story his country didn't want the world to see. Then you start... Growing up, and you, you, you then experience inequalities. For, for before that, your parents sort of hide you from it. And then that even makes you more fierce about advocating for not just your own rights, but the rights of everyone. In the best of times, Mick is a jovial yet authoritative figure. Someone with a lifetime of lived experience as an Aboriginal man and social justice advocate. But today, he is not as relaxed as he usually is. 
It's a sign the debate on The Voice is getting to even the most experienced and strident of leaders. Someone who has been through the tumult of public debate before, like during the rise and demise of ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. I remember being in Rockhampton as a young fella chairing a community meeting when Jerry Hand and Charlie Perkins came around to talk about this new body they were proposing. It was ATSIC. For without Aboriginal people in Australia in a suitable and equitable position in Australian society, there is no future for Australian people either. The both the two things have to go together, the advancement of Aboriginal people with the advancement of the Australian nation. I was pretty fresh-faced in those days. I wasn't that cynical as I am now. ATSIC came into operation in 1990 under legislation introduced by the Hawke government. It was established at a time when the federal government had promised a treaty between Aboriginal people and the Commonwealth of Australia in response to the Baranga Statement presented to Hawke in 1988. There shall be a treaty negotiated between... between the Aboriginal people and the government on behalf of all the people of Australia. This was all part of a new attempt by Bob Hawke at making Australia whole. He was promising Indigenous people a say in the future of their communities. And he was promising a treaty that would recognise the disposition of the past. But ATSIC wasn't placed in the Constitution. It was only legislated by the Parliament. We finally had a national voice that could put all that stuff to government but the big difference was at the regional level. So it started there, and what struck me and I struck the people who I work with was that ATSIC was about local decision-making. If we can actually start getting what we wanted and we identified within central Queensland what we wanted and needed, it was a way to go forward. ATSIC was an elected representative body of 35 office holders elected directly by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across 35 ATSIC regions. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission is also evidence. The council indeed is the product of imagination and goodwill. And it was just beginning to have an impact across Australia when Prime Minister Paul Keating gave his now famous Redfern Address. All over Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are taking charge of their own lives and assistance with the problems which chronically beset them is at last being made available in ways developed by the communities themselves. The Commission had the power to develop policy across all portfolio areas affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. ASIC allocated funding, worked on community development, cultural heritage preservation and advocated on behalf of its constituents. ASIC ran community-owned rental homes in Indigenous communities, offered legal support and could help tailor programs to meet the diverse needs of Indigenous communities right across Australia. Two of the biggest programs ATSIC never funded was health and education. And if you think about a way out for disadvantaged people like us, I think education and health, you can't think of any things, we wouldn't talk about them. Until we finally realised the power of an elected body having a say over programs that they don't fund. All of a sudden, I saw these regional councils call education officials to report 
on things like achievement, attainment, retention, attendance, you know, expulsions, suspensions. And all of a sudden, these people realised they had someone outside looking in at them and, and things started to change. It finally felt like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples had a say over how money was spent on their behalf. But from the very outset, there were those who thought ATSIC shouldn't exist. That it was setting up one part of the population as being special above all others. ATSIC was troubled from the first vote. It was supposed to be a revolution in Aboriginal affairs, an attempt at self-determination that put control back into Aboriginal hands through elected representatives. But nearly three years later, its critics remain, and they're not all conservative or white. Oh, they were scared. I think they just thought we were this ATSIC mob sitting there. And and unfortunately, mate, there was also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bureaucrats who wouldn't even come and talk to. You know, there's a lot of political stuff going on around the creation of ATSIC and people liked it, people hated it. I think it's one of the biggest uh, disasters in Aboriginal affairs policy in the last 40 years. It's been established for three years with a budget of, uh, an annual budget of $1.13 billion. And as far as I can see, they've made very little inroads into um, effecting resolutions. Yeah, the Commission needed reform, we knew that. But we wanted regional councils to stay in place. And I, I talk to people now and they say to me, who are at the centre of this decision-making, saying, we, geez, we made a blue getting rid of regional councils. So there's, a, there's some recognition that regional councils were actually working. And, and after all, when you think about us as Aboriginal people, isn't that the essence of us, local people making mm. decisions about their stuff? This is, you know, it's like me. I can't interfere with Durrambul people who are the traditional owners in Rockhampton. I look after my mob, the Gungaloo mob. To the public service and its political masters, it was a huge disruptor and many wanted it abolished. Not least of all, the newly elected Prime Minister, John Howard. I feel, I feel many emotions tonight, but the deepest emotion of all I feel is that of humility that the Australian people have given me the privilege of leading the government of this country and I want to say... Well, you've got to understand a bit of history. John Howard never liked ATSIC. Mm. The first cabinet meeting of the Howard government was about abolishing ATSIC. It was always that from 96 when Howard got elected. It was almost on a war footing. I was sort of secretary to the board of commissioners at this stage. We met on the, on the Sunday. Commissioners came in, plus other leaders like Mick and Patrick Donson and others came in to strategise about how this was going to go and it was like war setting in there. And pretty soon after that, the Howard government redid all the budgets and we lost $400 million out of the ATSIC budget and we had to have all these meetings to work out where to make the cuts. It was open hostility between the Howard government and ATSIC right from day one. Reconciliation will not work if it puts a higher value on symbolic gestures and overblown promises, it will not work if it is premised solely on a sense of national guilt and shame. Australians of this generation should not be required to accept guilt and blame for past actions and policies over which they had no control. A series of scandals played ATSIC during its final years. 
The scandals played into the narrative pushed by the Howe government, painting the Commission as dysfunctional and a waste of taxpayers' money. The scandal centred around two of the leading proponents of ATSIC, Jeff Clark, its chair, and Deputy Chair Sugar Ray Robertson. We'd all love a back veranda like Jeff Clark's, the man who rubbed shoulders with prime ministers and made headlines throughout his career, has an outdoor bar, a kitchen, even a huge stone pizza oven. But questions are being asked about where all the money came from to pay for it. Following this string of scandals, at midnight on March 16, 2005, through legislation introduced by the Howard government, ASIC was formally abolished. A review recommended that ASIC should only be reformed. The regional councils, the history-making structure and staff could have stayed. And the problems at the top addressed. But instead, John Howard used it as grounds to destroy the whole organisation. You were the acting CEO of ATSIC at the time it was disbanded. Yeah, I was the last employee of ATSIC, funny enough. What was it like during the last week or what was it like during the last day? Oh, mate, it's 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 like the seven stages of grief, you know. Like you, you get angry, you go into denial. I, I got angry with commissioners. I got angry with the government. I got angry with the Labor Party. But most of all, I, I felt for our mob losing this, and I felt for those 1,500 staff who invested up to 15 years of their life in this organisation. And I remember going over to... Parliament House to get the news before they announced the abolition of ATSIC and I came back and did a walk around the office and there were literally people in that, you know, the MLC building in, in Woden just sitting at their desk crying, saying, what have they done? What have they done? You know, and that was one of the worst days of my life just to go around and talk to people and say, what could you say? You know, we we, we got this job to do. We still represent Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Island people. I remember the final decision came and I just felt totally bereft of ideas. So I turned my phone off and sat playing solitaire all afternoon, went home and said to my partner, that's it, I'm resigning tomorrow. I just can't, I can't do this anymore. The demise of ATSIC saw the end of national representation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The Howard government and governments across Australia move to service-based funding models, with a line between advocating on behalf of communities and being a client of government was often blurred. It felt like an opportunity lost, an opportunity unlikely to arise again. All the apparatus around ASIC was packed up and put away. And the idea of First Peoples of Australia having a direct say in the policies that affect them, it sat dormant for almost two decades. We'll be back after this. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, 
but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Howard years saw ideas of treaty, of truth and representation drift. Howard, forever the culture warrior, rejected what he saw as the black armband view of history and the way it impacted modern Australia. But the idea of recognition and representation for First Peoples never really went away. It could be said that, in part, the movement kept on going in spite of Howard. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking the organisers for inviting me to um, speak today at this very important forum and particularly this uh, very important panel with such distinguished speakers. I first heard Um, Megan Davis speak at a conference somewhere back in time, well before the Uluru Statement. She worked on the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. She was speaking to a crowded room full of people, and one line struck with me in particular. She said, With Aboriginal affairs, nothing happens without agitation or litigation. It's something that's stuck with me ever since, and something that's resonating throughout the course of this current debate. One can see there is a lengthy history of Indigenous peoples raising their concerns at the UN about the way business, especially extractive industries, conduct themselves with Indigenous peoples on Indigenous lands. And if I look Professor Megan Davis is a cobble-cobble woman and is a renowned constitutional lawyer, public law expert and a key architect of the Uluru Dialogues and the Voice to Parliament. Yes, yeah, so constitutional recognition had been, you know, floating around Australian politics since probably the 1999 Republic referendum. So that's that's where you started to see parties taking on this aspect to their political platforms of constitutional recognition. Recognition and constitutional recognition has been a part of the Aboriginal rights discourse for some time. I mean, it came up at the tail end of that reconciliation period just before Howard shut it down, where he divided the world into practical rights and what he calls symbolic rights, which are actually substantive recognition rights. So when the idea of recognising First Nations Australians in our constitution came back onto the agenda, she followed it with interest. From a hung parliament and 17 days of indecision, Australia finally has a government. Julia Gillard tonight called on the Governor-General to tell her that she can lead a stable government. So it's 2010. Prime Minister Julia Gillard's government has just been re-elected as a minority government with the support of Rob Oakeshott, Tony Windsor and the Greens. Today I want to say to Australians one and all, I can assure you that this political drama is over and now you are back at centre stage where you should properly be. At times... It was one of the most tumultuous times in Australian politics but it also presented itself as an opportunity for those seeking constitutional reform. And so it wasn't until probably um, the hung parliament where Rob Oakeshott and um, Tony Windsor and Adam Bant from the Greens held Gillard to an agreement in that letter of agreement for her to form government in the lower house that she needs to move on on this multi-party support for constitutional recognition. So she needs to have a process that just finds out what form of recognition and then how do you get people to a ballot box? Um, how do you get the nation to a referendum? In order to get the two independent MPs' support and the Greens, 
Gillard agreed to taking the nation to a referendum on recognition for First Peoples. The Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, has announced that Australia will go to a referendum on the constitutional recognition of its Indigenous people. Now is the right time to take the next step and to recognise in the Australian Constitution the First Peoples of our nation. Now's the right time to take that next step to build trust and respect. To bring reconciliation back into the public realm, the Gillard government proposed a recognised campaign, a campaign to insert new words into the constitution through a referendum held at some point in the future. Australia's politicians are taking the next step toward recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution, announcing that a summit will be held in Sydney in July. The Australian Constitution makes no mention whatsoever of Aboriginal peoples. If you read the document, you'd probably get the impression that the history of this continent began in 1788. The Constitution in Section 25 also recognises that the states can stop people voting because of their race. I'm not aware of any other constitution in the world today that still contains a clause of this kind. G'day, I'm Adam Goods, and I'd like to talk to you about Recognise. Recognise is the movement to change the Australian constitution and acknowledge the proud history of our first Australians. The Recognise campaign was heavily backed by corporate Australia and some of the nation's biggest sporting codes, but it wasn't backed by huge swathes of the Aboriginal community. You have this period from Gillard to 2015 where there's a recognised campaign and everything seems to be coalescing around this idea of symbolic recognition, which is something that, you know, our mob said they didn't want. And then also most Australians in the polling and research that we did off the expert panel were saying don't go to the effort of a referendum if it's just going to be tokenistic symbolic recognition you need to do something substantive that's going to change people's lives. In large part, symbolic recognition was rejected by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community itself, tired of the ongoing disparity in outcomes for people and the disadvantage that ensued. As always, the community wanted more. There was only one thing to do. They had to go to the Prime Minister and say this symbolic recognition wasn't going to cut it. And by this time, the Prime Minister wasn't Julia Gillard. It was Tony Abbott. Anglo-Australian males from middle-class families tend to have had a magic carpet ride through life. Still, this has not stopped the whispering in my heart that our most serious failure as a nation has been our difficulty in acknowledging the people we displaced. So I am a supporter of constitutional recognition. What was really important about that period and then the lead up to 2015, where we see a really significant change in a, in a meeting with Abbott at Kirribilli House where our mob was saying symbolic recognition's off the table. There appears to have been a big shift over the referendum on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander recognition in the Constitution. Mr Abbott's called a snap meeting with four of the most prominent advocates for the referendum tomorrow. A crucial meeting in 2015 occurred at Kirribilli House with Tony Abbott as Prime Minister, where Aboriginal people were saying for the first time symbolic recognition was off the table. And we went, me, Noel Pearson, Patrick Dodson, Kirsty Parker, we went to Abbott and we said people are not going to support symbolism 
And so that's why the Referendum Council was set up. It was set up because of the rejection of the statement of recognition or a symbolic statement or mention of First Nations people in the Constitution as the primary reform. The federal government and the opposition have announced the makeup of an advisory council to consult on the best prospect of recognising Aboriginal Australians in the Constitution. The announcement was delayed when Tony Abbott was replaced as Prime Minister. One of the council members is Professor... Megan and the rest of the panel realised they had to go back to square one. What did First Nations people actually want? Representatives from across the country are gathering at Uluru tonight to begin the First Nations Convention, looking to reach an agreement on a way forward on constitutional recognition. You know, we didn't make really decisions about who came to the rock. We just knew that we wanted a national meeting. And I think it started in Broome, the first meeting where people started having a ballot box election. So people, the local people in the dialogue elected 10 representatives and they all attended the rock at uh, Uluru. So one of the things about the process is our mob have been let down by bureaucrats at a local, state and federal level for decades and decades, particularly in that kind of post-AXIC vacuum. People come out and talk to communities and they do this, what communities call a tick and flick consultation, which is superficial and nobody ever comes back to tell them what happened and so in order to get people's trust, there are a number of, thing, a number of things that were, were raised um, in the meetings, such as they didn't want members of the agency there, um, that is to say the bureaucrats, and they wanted everything recorded. And so we had scribes who wrote everything. So it didn't matter whether it was a radical idea or whether it was a completely unachievable idea or whether it was a conservative idea. We had scribes and we wrote out everything and then transcribe that. And then um, each, at the end of every process, all the mob would come into the room and we would capture on that, from the butcher's paper onto the documents, agreements, disagreements, the tensions, everything. And then they would sign off on that record of meeting. And it was the rec- that record of meeting that was read out at Uluru so that everybody's views and opinions and quotes were captured. The Uluru dialogues as they came to be known were a range of meetings across the country, from town hall meetings to more intimate settings. Regional dialogues and delegates from those dialogues from First Nations communities across the country culminated in a conference at Uluru in 2017. And then we all went to the rock where those records of meetings were read out and then um, a decision was made about the primary reform and then we wrote the one-page logic to the Australian people because... That's how our people have always petitioned countries and the Crown, you know, it is a common method of Indigenous peoples and that's what the Uluru Statement from the Heart was. A one-page offering to the people of Australia. The dialogues themselves were robust and sometimes heated. Not everyone agreed, but the vast majority of people at Uluru in 2017 put themselves behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And Megan was the first person to read it out loud. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. 
It has never been ceded or extinguished. I remember the Uluru Statement being read for the first time. I remember reading it myself. The thing I remember most about it is the beauty of its words, its humble sentiment, and its small offering to the people of Australia as a way to move forward together when it comes to reconciliation. I had no idea that from there we would lead to a referendum on the statement itself and particularly the voice. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda. After months of consultation, after speaking with hundreds of voices, most of them First Nation voices, the Uluru Statement was presented to the Turnbull Government in the Great Hall of Parliament in 2017. I just remember feeling very tired, but also a, a sense of relief, but also pride. I was there that day in the Great Hall, a day where Aboriginal leaders from across Australia, from all portfolio areas, people who are experts in health, education and justice and the overall welfare of their people, came together to present this document to Parliament. I remember there was a high level of expectation that day that the Turnbull government would accept the Uluru Statement from the heart for what it was, a humble offering. But instead, the statement was immediately rejected by that government and mischaracterised by its senior members as a third chamber of parliament. I do not believe what would in, in effect be a third chamber of parliament available only to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander okay. people is consistent with our uh, constitutional that, values. Every single law... It was clear there would be no bipartisan support for the statement. The statement itself falling into the minutiae of the to and fro of day-to-day politics. Constitutional enshrinement was off the table. Turnbull's successor, Scott Morrison, was open to a legislative voice. But if you remember, ATSICA was legislated. It was a vivid reminder of how any government could abolish the voice with a stroke of a pen, just as the Howard government had done with ATSIC back in 2005. It wasn't until the election of the Albanese government that the commitment to take the voice proposition to a referendum was guaranteed. And on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in For many of us, there were mixed emotions about the voice being taken to a referendum. Indeed, it was an opportunity to enshrine the voice within the Constitution. But it was also an opportunity for the national debate to be had around First Nations people and not with First Nations people. The voice is about the right to political participation. It is deeply embedded in and reflective of those normative principles that our people should be able to choose people um, or select people who then represent their voice to the primary player in this space, the federal parliament. But what we know now in relation to Canberra and what politicians and bureaucrats say is their work is not really directed to the things that our people say are critical 
right now. Things like poison water and ageing infrastructure and the problem of not getting superannuation early and the problem of housing and you know, the, the voice will really be able to make those representations so that Australians can see the difference between what the voice says is a priority and what bureaucracy and government and parliament say is a, a priority. And their priorities are always driven by resource allocation issues and where they are in the electoral cycle. Our priorities are driven by something very different, and that is the care and well-being and love of our communities. The national debate on The Voice has been all-consuming, a bruising affair, particularly for First Nations people, many of whom have felt subjugated as part of the maelstrom, spoken about more than spoken to. Whenever you go anywhere, whether it's a social setting, the back of a taxi, or just chewing the fat with friends, it's all that anyone wants to ask you about. It's as intoxicating as it is toxic. Even for stalwarts like Mick Gooder, it can be all too much. How are you feeling about all of it? Ah, oh, it's a bit of waxing and whining, you know. You talked about, you know, me being an optimist and a pragmatist, and uh, but there's still days when I tell people I curl up in the fetal position under the doona and don't want to get out because you're feeling pretty tired of it all. Um, but, see, we don't have that option. <laughs> mm. we, we don't have the option to give up. We've just got to get up there and keep going. And I try to look at the positives and, and one of the positives for me is young people. These young people get it, you know, and um, unfortunately when you look at the figures, you look at my generation, the boomers, we far outnumber young people and, um, and we know how boomers go. When my kids want to insult me, they call me boomer. So um, I, I worry about it. I, I try to be pragmatic about it, but then think about we just don't have a choice to give up. So your message to people, First Nations people everywhere, is there is no choice, you, you just have to keep going? I learned to admire Rob Riley from WA. He'd passed away by the time I got to WA. And he had a saying we sort of all remind ourselves of, I think it's great in its simplicity, and he said, you can't be wrong if you're right. And you don't stop fighting because you're making people uncomfortable. You just keep fighting. And that's what we've got to do. You know, people are feeling uncomfortable. They, they feel uncomfortable. I do a lot of stuff around racism and I can see everyone cringe. Our mob, everyone in a room will cringe when we mention the R word, but we can't ignore it and we've got to keep fighting. Enshrining the voice in the Constitution, how critical is that to ensuring its success? Because I think the Coalition has made noises about being prepared to legislate something like the voice. Yeah. Why enshrining it in the Constitution? You know, I, I reflect on on the power of referendums. It, it's not the politician speaking, it's the people of Australia speaking. And if the people of Australia speak in the positive here, imagine a government going against that. Imagine how powerful it is when the people of a country speak this is people who will hold this government, all government, future governments accountable because they spoke and said they wanted this voice. We don't have, you know, what is it, 20, so three years since we last yeah. had a referendum? We don't do them all that often. Yeah. But I tell people eventually you're going to be in a polling booth with a piece of paper, just you and a pencil. This is where... The rubber hits the road, folks, when you're standing in that polling booth 
having to write yes or no, it's you. It's amazing how quiet a polling booth can be too. Yeah, and get rid of all that outside noise. Maybe I'm just Pollyanna here, but I think when people realise the power they have once they get in that booth, I reckon that will change people. For many Aboriginal leaders, this will be the last bit of advocacy that they pursue on behalf of their people. They have seen what happened when ATSIC was abolished. They have seen the idea of reconciliation drift. It is now up to the people of Australia whether complacency leads to a further drift or whether action can be taken and the power of that action placed in the hands of First Australians. When it all comes down to it, it's just us, a pencil and a box. And whether we write yes or no, will determine not only the outcome of the referendum, but what sort of country we see ourselves as. I'm Daniel James. This is the fight for a voice. Tomorrow, I speak to Senator Lydia Thorpe. Why is one of Australia's most prominent Aboriginal leaders saying no to the voice? And what is she calling for instead? That's tomorrow on 7am. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au.